Hello, everyone. You're listening to the Team Illinois podcast, the official podcast for the Illinois District Council of the Assemblies of God. On this podcast, you'll be able to listen to all the different talks from our events, such as Connected Conference, District Council, Breakaway Camp, Momentum Youth Convention, and anything else we do. And also, you'll be able to listen to conversations with leaders in our community. On this episode, we'll have a keynote speech from author Dr. Ed Stetzer. This is from Connected Conference 2018 in Hanover Park. In this talk, Dr. Stetzer discusses the state of the church in America, separating fact from fiction, and he gives insights on what we as church leaders need to focus on in the days and years to come. I really encourage you guys, even if you're at Connected Conference and you heard this talk in person, listen to it again, take notes. It will really bring value to you and your ministry. Without any further ado, here's Dr. Ed Stetzer. If you're not familiar with the name Ed Stetzer, let me give a brief introduction by simply saying he is a researcher, an academician, a missiologist, a church planter, and a pastor. He is also doing an interim pastoral work at Moody Church in Chicago, serving as the interim pastor during their transition. He is a teaching pastor at High Point Church, a church with multiple campuses throughout all of the Chicagoland area. Currently, Dr. Stetzer serves as the chair of the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. Previous to that, he was with Lifeway Research. A great friend and, uh, man, just a great friend to the Assemblies of God. He is a frequent contributor to our Influence magazine. I am so thrilled that we have Dr. Stetzer with us today. Would you put your hands together and welcome Dr. Ed Stetzer. Welcome, friend. Thank you. Hey. You know, that's pretty nice when you get a standing round or ovation for just showing up on time. And imagine you got that at your work. Right? People are like, he's here on time, yeah! Just amazing. What an affirmation culture. Appreciate being here. Love being with the assemblies of God. Kind of a lot like Baptists in a lot of ways. Got the same rules, got the same regulations. You can't drink in front of other people. And there's a whole lot of other things. Uh, I mean, or at all, or at all. Um, so a lot like Baptists, the assemblies of God, you're just happy about it. So that's the difference between the two. But it is good to be here and to, uh, to share with you. <laughs> you're going to remember that one, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. I can make that joke. You can't. Uh, but it's so good to be here. I, I haven't done a district meeting in a while. I've, done, I've been in the national meeting a few times. I do chapel at the, uh, at the headquarters of the denomination that doesn't like to be known as a denomination, even though it has a big headquarters and a school and districts and leaders. But no, it's a movement, not a denomination. And denial is not just a river in Egypt. Um, <laughs> but I love being here. So fun fact, I bet you didn't know, right? So I actually, I actually was discipled at Calvary Assembly of God in Winter Park, Florida. And uh, Roy Harthorn there for a while, then Alex Clattenburg. And at one point, right, you know Roy Harthorn's, you know, at one point, Benny Hen was my high school Bible study teacher. He, no white suits, was normal looking. And so... Uh, we all change. Um, 
But I am super glad to be here, love being here. You know, it's, it's, uh, they asked me to talk about some numbers, and I love talking about numbers with Pentecostals because Pentecostals have, well, they've got good numbers, right? You know, you know Pentecostalism is the fastest growing movement in the history of the global church. There's never been a time, never been a season, never been a place. The early church, what didn't grow as fast? It's Pentecostalism from Azusa Street, depending how you count it. I know you count Hot Springs, but let's recognize some stuff took place before Hot Springs at Azusa, and maybe even some took back even to Topeka in 1901. But you go all the way back to there. Of course, you know, the Church of God people, they claim it was going on in the 1800s, but they're, they're, they weren't Pentecostals then. They were like Baptists, pretending to be Pentecostals. You know, that denomination existed before Azusa, and so like, we're the oldest Pentecostal denomination. Yeah, because you weren't Pentecostals. Now you're Pentecostals. Anyway, another story for another day. I'm just a little bitter. I know there's this thing between Cleveland and Springfield. I'm just going to tell you, I'm on Team Springfield. And uh, just to get that historically. Come on now. Come on now. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Love the, love the church of God as well. So, but, but again, uh, I was, there was a, couple, a story a couple of years ago where they asked me to comment uh, in your news release, you know, 25 years of consecutive growth with the Assemblies of God, but globally, you know, it was so much more, so much more. I mean, globally, zero to 600 million in about a century, that's a pretty stunning growth, and we haven't seen anything like that of continualist Christians, not just the Assemblies of God, but people who believe in the working and gifts of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit is still at work today. So I've been asked today to talk with you about kind of how things are going. What's the state of the church? What's it look like where we are? Now, the reality is it's different everywhere, right? It's just different wherever you go because there's not one place that's the same. You know, I'm I'm the, you mentioned I'm the interim teaching pastor at Moody Church in downtown Chicago. Any been to Moody Church? Anyone come there? Yes, I've been there. It's kind of a fun, it's actually a tourist attraction. It's literally got a TripAdvisor rating and everything. Um, And we have buses of tourists that show up. But I've been the interim there for two years. Um, which technically I've been there longer than two of their actual pastors were the pastors of the church, but two years, and um, so I'm the longest interim ever, uh, but, and, and still no end in sight, so we continue to serve and to preach there. Uh, but, you know, the community there is very different, right? As a matter of fact, it's very different than where I live. I live in Wheaton, where I'm a professor at Wheaton College. Very different there. Now, um, and, and you go to these different communities and find it, and even when you think about, like, where Moody is, you know, that church was founded to reach the urban poor, right? The urban poor don't live anywhere near that. That's one of the most affluent neighborhoods in Chicagoland now. And so what do you do? So we have this sign on the side of the church that says, ever welcome in this house are strangers and the poor. That was one of the first churches that was built that didn't charge pew rent. So you could come in and you take any seat. As a matter of fact, Warren Wearsby used to say, come in, grab a seat, any seat. They're all equally uncomfortable. Because, you know, there's none of this fancy Pentecostal padding on the pews here. All right, we sit on hard chairs, it's like penance, right? Um, but, but, you know, that community is very, very different. So how do we do that? Well, first, we're going to look at kind of a big picture of where we are. There are things we can do together. For example, you've heard a little bit about Explore God Chicago, and, and our church will be participating in that as well. I know many of you will be. We're actually bringing churches together to kind of billboards and advertisements to talk about reaching people. So there are things we can do together, right? There are also things that are unique to our specific context. Well, I want to talk a little bit about what's going on in North America, and then we'll zero in just a bit. And I actually did a presentation recently on the state of the gospel in DuPage County. Not, not all of you are in DuPage County. Matter of fact, just a few of you are. How many are you in DuPage County? Just a few. The rest of you are not far from the kingdom, uh, but uh, DuPage. Um, so, so again, I, but I, again, I work at the Billy Graham Center, and uh, we, it's a world hub of mission, uh, evangelism, training for Christ and His kingdom. If you're ever in the area, feel free to come by. We have the museum on the first floor. Uh, you can actually come by there and, um, 
and, and kind of visit, walk through. I will tell you that with, with the museum, one of the things that my desire is to do is to have a more intentional Pentecostal presence in the museum uh, because there's not a lot there right now, but there's some wonderful Pentecostal evangelists, different times and different seasons, who weren't on the mainstream radar screen back particularly in the 50s and the 60s during some of the healing, healing revivals or go back before that with Amy Simple McPherson and others. So we'll be working towards that. But again, what we do there is carry on the legacy of Mr. Graham by developing thought leaders who make a difference for Christ and his kingdom in every sector of society. To do today, I want to talk about the mission field and the mission force, and I want to talk about kind of where we are right now. But I need you to help me to start. Okay, I'm going to start over here, and uh, I don't know, am I being filmed? Am I okay walking around? I don't know. I don't, I don't think that's on, so I don't see a red light. Um, so, so over here, I need you to, uh, you're going to be the people from the 30s and the 40s. I want you to get yourself mentally in the 30s and the 40s. For you, you're going to be the 50s and the 60s, and for you, you're going to be today. Three, three groups here, right? I don't want to talk about the state of the church, right? So if you're in the 30s and the 40s, I want you to do something. You've got to shout, which is not a hard thing for you as Pentecostals. Uh, the, uh, I want you to shout, what percentage of Americans do you think regularly attended church in the 30s and the 40s? Shout out a number. Goes anywhere from 60 to 90. Uh, the average is 75. By the way, that's how real quality research is done right there. That's how we know <laughs> that stuff, right? Right there. You know, 87% of statistics are made up on the spot, so we're going to go with that right now. So in the 30s and the 40s, 75% of Americans regularly attended church, okay? Good. So let's jump ahead to the 50s and the 60s, maybe even to the 70s. Not when it got like, you know, hippy-dippy 70s, but kind of, you know, the beginning of the 70s, right? So before Led Zeppelin, you forget it, you wouldn't know who that is. Um, Christians, don't, we don't listen to that stuff, right? Amen? All right, so I won't make any movie references either because we know we don't go to those um, <laughs> when our church members know. All right, so, um, so, so that being said, um, 50s and 60s, what percentage of, of Americans are regularly attending church? Shout it out. Uh, it averaged 50. Right at 50 is where it averaged, right? So we're at 75, we're at 50. So now we're today. So we're today. Now these folks look like the sharpest folks. And I'm only saying that because you're here at the front. Um, and <laughs> so what percentage today? Shout out some numbers. Someone said 10. Well, you, you got to get out, meet some Christian friends. Um, so we're going to say 25. It was closer to 30, but I need a round number. Okay, so here's our perception of what's going on, right? Our perception of what's going on is, is that we're basically the chart looks like this on a human chart right now. 75, my head is 50, and then down to 25. And, and so we regularly attend church. Okay, so let me tell you what actually it is. I'm going to tell you the actual numbers, right? Um, Gallup has been studying this since 19, 1938. So Gallup, um, Gallup was actually a person of faith. He's Anglican, Episcopal. Um, so he's, he was interested in things of faith, and Gallup was around a long time. Barna would come later, uh, and then other Pew would kind of come in later. I'm going to share with you some other data. But, but Gallup has the longest data. It goes back to 1938, and here's what he found, that the percentage of people who claim to go to church in 1938 is actually the exact same percentage of people who claim to go to church today. Now, how could that be? Because clearly it's more secular. It is much more secular, right? Now, a couple of things. People always say, well, don't people exaggerate? See, some guy right there turning to his wife saying, you know, they kind of exaggerate their numbers going to church. And it's true. People do exaggerate their numbers. People try to answer what's more socially desirable. We have a word for that in research. It's lying. Um, <laughs> no, it's called the halo effect. Um, 
So the halo effect sort of causes people to answer a little higher, but they consistently do so, so we can actually track that over time. So here's the reality I don't want you to miss. For the last several decades, the percentage of people who regularly go to church has not changed much. You say, Ed, you can't be serious. The world is much more secular. Stay with me. We're going to see why. So, so we look at the difference and the distinction between the two, because clearly the world has gotten much more secular. And I think that's true. It's, it's an obvious case that we can walk around and see that the world is indeed much more secular. But how can it be? Because churches haven't collapsed. I mean, the Assemblies of God is, again, 25, just a couple years ago, 25 years of consecutive growth. Sherry Doty, who does the statistics for the Assembly of God, she'll send them to me. She's a great researcher, by the way. And we can see consistent growth. Now, you have a particular growth in a Latino context as well, which has accelerated your growth even more so. If you just look at whites, you're actually not growing. But if you look at the diversity that we would want, right, I don't want to be, people keep quoting white evangelicals. I don't want to be on that team. I want to be on the team of the evangelicals with men and women from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And I'm deeply thankful for that. Amen? All right, so that's who we are, right? So if that's who we are, so what's going on statistically? Well, okay, let's take another look, right? Let's take another look. Um, in, if we look back at uh, evangelicals, in research, there are four kinds of, uh, four kinds of work. I mean, excuse me, four kinds of people that we study in big groups, right? Roman Catholics, right? So that wouldn't be us. Though for some, uh, my, my spiritual journey kind of intersected the charismatic movement in the Catholic Church. That's where my mother heard the gospel. A lot of those people would later fill AG churches. I was just talking to folks up in Buffalo at the, the Tabernacle. Tommy Reed used to be there years ago. And the whole charismatic Catholic movement sort of just it filled up that church. Right, so, so we've got Catholics. We've got number two is mainline Protestants. So think of the Episcopal Church, United Church of Christ, more progressive, sometimes use the word liberal to describe themselves. Uh, the third is historic African-American churches. Now, there are African-Americans here, but you would actually be counted in the fourth category, the evangelical category, if you're in an Assemblies of God church. If you're in a Kajic church, you'd be counted in the fourth category, which is historic African-American churches. So you can be white and go to a Kajic church, and you'd be counted in Kajic as Church of God in Christ. Remember early on, and by the way, great work, George Wood, just seeing some of that reconciliation at the national level that was really heartfelt to see. Um, so, so what we see is, right, these four groups. We're going to primarily look at evangelicals. Now, 2009 was the year of evangelicalism's predicted demise. That year, John Meacham wrote an article for Newsweek. And, you know, they always write around Easter. The news magazines come out and tell you that Christianity's dying or Jesus didn't come back from the dead or he's, got his wife, he's married and he's living in London. You know, whatever it may be. You know, it's, they turn Jesus into Elvis every Easter. Because they sell a lot. You put Jesus on the cover, you'll sell lots of magazines. Right? So, so the... Uh, so, so, so the article comes out, and the cover story of Newsweek is uh, The End of Christian America by John Meacham. And, you know, got a lot of people's attention, very uh, strong cover. Um, and so ironically, by the way, a few years later, it would, Newsweek would actually cease to exist as a publication. Uh, and so let's pace ourselves before we predict demises. Um, and it's... <laughs> was that a little bitter? Uh, I'm going to get that root of bitterness out. Um, so... Um, and then Newsweek has actually now been bought by the same group that owns Christian Post, so the irony is complete. Um, so, um, but Meacham writes this article, and what he says is actually pretty good. He's basically saying the Judeo-Christian consensus, right, this idea that there really was a Christian America was being lost, that ultimately we're sort of moving into a 
post-Christian America age. Not, he didn't say post-Christian because how do you say post-Christian when 70 to 75% of Americans say they're Christians? But he said kind of a post-Christian America age. And, and I think he was mostly right. But it started this idea that the church was dying. And then the next person in this, and I'm not, I'm not sure the order, actually, I think it is this order, was a guy named Michael Spencer. Now, you might have known him as the internet monk. He was a blogger, lived in Kentucky, was worked at a Christian children's home. Uh, he was a friend of mine. Um, he, uh, he wrote an article series called The Coming Evangelical Collapse. And, and then Christian Science Monitor asked him to take his four-part blog series and make it into an article for, I mean, a very respected paper, uh, the Christian Science Monitor. In it, he said, within 10 years, some evangelical institutions will be a ghost town. We're seeing the collapse of evangelicalism. And evangelicals always kind of live in this period where they feel like they're going to die out soon. And I don't know why it is. I mean, I've read it into the book. Jesus wins. Just pace yourselves. It's going to be all right. Um, and so, but, but he wrote that. And we're, we're actually nine years into his prediction, and there are actually more evangelicals in America than there were when he wrote that. So, so what's going on as well? And by the way, it's more Pentecostal as well, more spirit-filled as well also. So, so the third thing that came out that year was the American Religious Identification Survey. Trinity College, not an evangelical, you know, one of the Ivy League's um, stronger faith commitment in the past, not today. And they found that about uh, from 20 years ago till that day, 2009, so you go back to 89 to 2009, uh, about 10% of Americans less called themselves Christians, right? So, so, that's where, so we ended up about 70, 75%, down from 85%. So these things come out, and, this, and all of a sudden there's a whole cottage industry that says Christianity's dying. One youth pastor, you'd know his name, the ministry's not there anymore, but you know his name. He had at the front of his webpage, big bold headline, Christianity won't survive another decade unless we do something now. And of course, he had a now. He had a training seminar. You go through this, we can turn it around. And I'm not, I'm not, I don't think that's bad because, but I, I think what people do is they elevate the stats to create motivation in us. But facts are our friends. Math doesn't care about our feelings. And we've got to actually be honest and true with what's going on. And no, Christianity will not die in 10 years unless we go to this seminar. It's just not going to happen. I mean, really, do we really think that? Do we really think that in 2028, you know, the last Christian's going to walk out of this church, go join a Wiccan coven in Schaumburg, and we're all done. Um, no, it doesn't make any sense. So, but we see these things all the time. And, and you've heard some. As a matter of fact, let me, let me give you an example. How many of you in this room have heard the stat that 86% of evangelical youth drop out of church after high school never to return? Raise your hand. Keep it high. Look at that. Look at that. Okay? It's a totally made-up statistic. Worse than what I did when I was doing the stats in here. It's a group of youth pastors who all love Jesus. I know their names. I could tell you their names. I know their organization. I've spoken at the organization. They're really sorry for putting out the fake stat. They retracted it. The publishing house that published it, they retracted it. The news house that covered the story, they retracted it. And yet half of you in the room have heard 86% stat. By the way, real research says that the vast majority of evangelicals have children who are evangelicals and have grandchildren who are evangelicals. So evangelicals are one of the higher groups that keep the next generation. You can find that in a book called Families and Faith, published, but it's a University of Southern California study. It's not like my people, right? It's not like my research firm. Published in Oxford University Press. Published. So this is real research shows something else. Not a wonderful group of youth pastors who love Jesus. I'll tell you how they did it. They got around like, like we just did there, and they all guessed, and they averaged their guesses, and it came out to 86%. And they released under a big fancy name, and we still believe it today. Read the Oxford University Press book. By the way, 
Extra bonus, anybody know what is the number one best-selling book that Oxford University Press ever sold and still sells today? Anybody? The Schofield Reference Bible. Inspired from the notes to the maps and everything in between. Anyway, um, KJV, good enough for Jesus, good enough for us. So, <laughs> sorry. So a little confession. So I'm on, I, I went, I had an MRI yesterday. I got a little pain in my back, and which I know saying that to a group of Pentecostals means prayer meeting. Um, so I've done that, and I want you to feel free. Uh, but uh, matter of fact, I, tweet, I tweeted the other day, I said, tweeted about this. I said, listen, I'm having some back pain. I really like some prayer. None of those mamby-pambies. Lord, if it be your will, heal them. I need some Pentecostals. We believe for healing for Ed Stetzer. So that's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm looking for. But anyway, so I'm just saying that because I'm on some drugs right now, so anything I say, I can take no responsibility for. <laughs> In hindsight, you're like, why did I invite Stetzer? This is going to go off the rails. Um, so, but there's this perception that Christianity is dying. There are whole books. Listen, I'm going to tell you, send your books back to the publisher that say Christianity is dying. No real researcher anywhere believes that Christianity is dying in America. Nobody, no real researcher at all. Now, yeah, sure, go ahead. I mean, let's rejoice. Now, you know, the news is not all good, so it's not time to stop, you know, popping the corks and, well, having some water. Um, um, because I think we're in some real challenging times. We're in some real challenging water. So don't hear from me telling you everything's okay, everything's fine. Because I want to go through and explain it to you. Now, let's take a look at a couple things. Now, the University of Chicago does a study every two years called the General Social Survey. If you study statistics in college, you probably are familiar with the General Social Survey. It's the most widely used and quoted ongoing research project, and it's been going on since 1972. So I want to show you what the, attend the regular church attendance among evangelicals. Remember, there are four groups, right? Catholic, mainline Protestant, historic African-American, and evangelical. So we're just going to take evangelical, and we're going to look at two things. Let's take a look on the screen, right? You see two lines. So the top line is actually those who say that they are. So let me give an example. So um, somebody calls you up and says, it's a survey, it's a phone survey, says, hey, I'm so-and-so from the University of Chicago General Social Survey. Uh, are, do you go to, uh, are you a Christian? Yes. Uh, what kind of Christian are you? I'm a, uh, I'm a Presbyterian Christian, right? Okay. So, okay. What, and so at that point, you're kind of, you're, you're something. Um, what kind of Presbyterian are you? And then people will say, I'm either PCA, ARP, ECO, EPC, or PCUSA, or something else. Now, I, sorry about, I speak Presbyterian. Uh, and so, so, and at that point, the PCA is evangelical. That's Tim Keller's denomination, right? So, we, you know, Tim Keller, we all like, you guys like Tim Keller, right? He's kind of like the fourth member of the Trinity to where we are. Um, so we really like him. Oh, that, was, that one crossed the line. I didn't like that one. That was the drugs. That was the drugs right there. I just want to say it out there. Don't be offended. There's no fourth member of the Trinity. It was just a joke. So, so they sort of sort. They sort by denomination. And so that's how you can tell. So let's take a look. And I'm going to use my pointer. Here's what we can find a few things, right? So, um, so did, um, you know, here's evangelicals. It starts down pretty low. Evangelicalism starts to grow. Kind of peaks in and around the 80s. 
uh, into the early 90s. Uh, some people ask you, they actually look and they say, is this kind of around the time of the televangelist scandals? You can't really like do it like that because it doesn't have the level of specificity. Sometimes it just moves because the sample size and the margin of error. So, but, but, you, but you do see here that there is a clear sense. I have no idea how there are two mice on the screen. Go. It didn't work. All right, so. Have you ever seen that before? I've never seen that before. I think it's the power that's emanating from this Pentecostal gathering. Um, loaves and fishes being multiplied right here. Um, so if you look, it kind of peaks in the 80s, kind of goes on from here, and this is the identification today. So Pentecostals are a little different. All Pentecostals end up in an evangelical bucket because Pentecostalism is considered a movement within evangelicalism. Now, not everyone likes that. You know, Tom Trask used to say, so yeah, we're Pentecostals who are evangelicals. We're not primarily evangelicals. And so he was always cautious. George was a little more open to use the term as well. But statistically, we count you as evangelicals, right? So, so but if you look here, here's what I find most interesting. This is the regular attendance line. And the regular tennis line just slowly keeps creeping up, bumps here, down here. But again, these little, these little moments here, you don't know anything particular happens, right? It's just sample size. But if you look, I mean, you go from 7.9% of the population to all the way over here when you're talking about 13% of the population. So don't miss this. 13 point something, three, I think, of the population of the United States regularly is going to an evangelical church. Now, again, but Ed, I heard evangelicalism was dying. It was in the midst of this, this great downturn. And, and I just want you to know that no real researcher and no real research says that. You say, but Ed, it feels more secular. Yeah, but math doesn't care about your feelings. And I'm going to explain why it feels more secular, because it is more secular. Matter of fact, let's look at young adults. And this is fascinating to me, right? So look, look at young adults. So here's young adults, right? Um, and it kind of peaks here as well. And identification kind of goes down, right? It's a little less back in, the, back in this time period. So, you know, for me, if you kind of go back here, this is kind of when I begin to engage. I'm at Calvary Assembly. Uh, I'm at a charismatic Episcopal church. I start going to Jesus Orlando, getting shaped in and around here. And so this is kind of a key growth time, right? Think of the decade of the harvest in the AG, right? So, but then something begins to happen. It kind of up and down a little bit, right? So, and, and here we are in identification, so less people are saying that they are. Now, this, now, I want to explain this in just a minute. But don't miss this. We'll get this line. Matter of fact, just look here at the end. We are at the highest level of young adult regular evangelical church attendance since this study began in 1972. Don't believe the lies that people are saying that Christianity is dying. Because not only is it not, that's a narrative that ultimately undermines the confidence in the gospel and the mission. And we need to recognize that culture is becoming more secular. But what's happening is, this is one of the things you're going to have. I believe in the years to come, you're going to see this gap close. Because here's why. It's getting harder to be a Christian in the culture where we find ourselves. And as it gets harder, less people will say they are and not attend. So the whole idea of the nominal Christian is going to decline as a reality. So here's what I find. When I work with young adults, what I find is they're actually more serious than, the, when, than we were when we were their age because they have to be if they're going to live their faith in the midst of an increasingly secular context. And i got to tell you, I think God's raising up a generation that's going to change the world, and I'm excited about what he's doing. I'm not discouraged about what he's doing. Now, mainline Protestants, right? So there are two groups that we're going to look at evangelicals because that's us. And I'm going to put up mainline Protestants so you might get a little feel. This is the 
regular churchgoers who are evangelical versus mainline among the young adults. How many 18, 29-year-olds do we have here? Raise your hand if you're 18, 29. Okay, good. So these are your friends and your peers, right? So um, these are those who regularly attend a mainline Protestant church, and this is a stunning collapse. So what's happened is, and this is also a key thing theologically. I want you not to miss this, right? Because there's always pressure on evangelicals to get on the right side of history, in other words, particularly with sexual ethics and more, you've got to get on the right side of history. Stop being so backwards. Well, the reality is mainline Protestants got on the right side of history and people stopped going to their churches. And so I don't, I don't you know, and I, I want to be on the right side of history in some ways, right? I wish Christians were more aggressively vocal in the 50s and 60s during the civil rights era. That's the side of history I'd like to be on. But at the same time, there's some areas I don't want to be on the right side of history. I want to be on the right side of the will of God and be in obedience to what he calls us to do. So we look at this here, and we see that evangelicals have actually made it through to that other side, uh, even through some of the challenging times that we're in right now. Now, I want you to know that I don't think everything is going great. I want to say it again. I want to say it again so you don't miss it, right? But let me do a couple of interviews here that may be helpful here, right? So uh, Rodney Stark is a famous author. Some of you probably read Cities of God, How Christianity Became an Urban Religion and Conquered Rome, or maybe uh, The Churching of America, Winners and Losers in America's Religious Economy. So he's not, he's not um, I couldn't really get him to talk about his faith much, which was kind of interesting. I interviewed him. I'm ES. Uh, he's RS. And I said, what's your kind of perception? In hindsight, I could have edited out the kind of when I put this up there, but this is actually a verbal transcript. What's your kind of perception? I sound like my 15-year-old daughter. Uh, what's like your kind of like perception of the state of like evangelicalism now? I'm gonna, I can't even tolerate that. I'm going to fix that right now. <laughs> This is what I asked him. What's your perception of the state of evangelicalism now? I'm a scholar. You know, what's your kind of like perception? So Ronnie Stark holds no punches. Actually, there's some words he used I couldn't even put in the transcript. Uh, he says, well, I think the notion that they're shrinking is stupid. And it's fiddling with the data in quite malicious ways. I see no such evidence. He goes on, one of the standard ones that drives me nuts is, young people are leaving the church in droves. What are we going to do? And then a forthcoming book, I'm going to put in there a table that justifies that by showing that people under 30 are much less likely to go to church. And then I'm going to reveal that the table is from data in 1972. Now, let me explain something that might help you with this, right? This might help, this might help a lot. Okay, so... Um, okay, so... I, was, I just came back from Buffalo. I was in Buffalo. I mentioned some of you might know Tommy Reed and the church, the tab there and all, and some of the AG history that's there. Um, so um, so I, 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 was, I planted a church in Buffalo um, 30 years ago. So I went back to the church that I planted, and it was just, it was just very cool. I preached at a church there called the chapel. But, um, but, but, but anyway, but what the, the idea here is, is that we see kind of this, let me come back over here, let me put this one here, right? So what we see is when I, when, when I was in Buffalo, you'll notice the, 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 I heard a conversation about young adults in church. So I went to, are any of you Gideons? Okay, let's talk about them. All right, so um, how many of you are pastors in a church? Raise your hand for just a second. Okay, so you know the Gideon avoid, right? Because the Gideons come up and they say, hey, pastor, hey, you wanna, we have this dinner in your honor. Would you come? And you're like, okay, so I went, right? And then it's, hey, Pat, well, thanks for coming to our dinner. Could we, like, have a service 
one Sunday just to share about the Gideons. And they, they, they asked for the whole service. Some of you nodding me, you know what I'm talking about. So you got to sort of have a plan, right? you got to have a plan. And so you're kind of like, well, you know, why don't we get, we can give you a little testimony at the beginning. And they, well, how can we have 20 minutes? And they're very, they're very good at, like, getting the time from you. And so I was 21 years old as a pastor in the inner city of Buffalo, New York, planning a church among the urban poor. And a Gideon shows up and says, hey, would you come to the dinner? And I'm like, sure. So I go to the dinner. And, um, and I learn about the Gideons. Don't know. And I, so, but they're all old. Like, they're all 60s and above. There was a guy named 50 there. I think he was the youth group. And so, the, uh, but they're pretty much 60 and above. There's nothing wrong with being 60 or above. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand. But they kept saying to me, this was, you know, I was 21. And they're saying, look, Pastor, how can we get some more young men in this? How can we do this? It's a men's fraternal organization. How can we get more young men? We're going to die out. We're all in our 60s, 70s. We're going to die out if we don't get some new young people. And I didn't know. I was 21 years old. I'm just barely trying to plant a church. Um, so, so anyway, so last year I get a phone call from the Gideons, and they asked me to do their, speak at their national meeting in Canada. And so I show up there. Now, mind you, I was in Buffalo. The meeting's two hours away from Buffalo in Toronto. So I end up in Toronto, and I speak, and I look around, and they're all old. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure, it's 30 years later, I'm pretty sure they're not the same old people. <laughs> I mean, they could be. I'm not judging, you know. So I'm like, so, so and it just hits me. It hits me, generational cohort replacement, which is what goes on sometimes in my mind. So let me explain what that means. Um, when it comes to the Gideons, they're going to go on forever because when you turn 59, an irresistible pull seems to come into your heart that draws you into the Gideons. Um, so, so, and that's called generational cohort replacement. Now, you can see it in the Gideons because you're like, 30 years later, they're still 60. They're not the same people. They'd be 90. So something's happening. Can I tell you? Now, i got to use some, some technical words. When it comes to religiosity and practice, generations replace themselves. So when someone puts out a chart and says 60% of the older generation goes to church regularly, and 50% of middle-aged, and 40% of, you know, between that middle-aged, that younger, and 30%. And then when you get down to the 16-year-olds, is only 10%. It's not going to be 10% when they're 60. Because they replace, and pretty consistently for five decades now, there's been a pattern of replacement. Young adults are the most irreligious, and they grow into that. Now, there are some signs that that may be changing because the culture is starting out more secularly. But let's not stop there. Let's look at Greg Smith at Pew Research. Do you have a couple of words that would kind of... <laughs> that would describe <laughs> your perception of the trends regarding where evangelicalism is numerically and its strength what would you use? I'm asking him to use some words to describe it. He says, with respect to evangelicalism in particular, I would say that particularly compared with other Christian traditions in the United States, evangelicalism is quite strong. It's holding its own, in both in terms of its share of the total population. It's holding its own in terms of the number of Americans who identify with evangelical Christianity. If you look at Christianity as a whole or Protestantism as a whole, the share of Protestants in the United States or evangelicals is, if anything, growing. He goes on to say, the number of devout people... Oh, this is Tim Keller, right? So... Um, I asked Keller a similar quote. This is not my question to him, but Keller basically puts it this way, and it's super helpful. This is what I don't want you to miss. The number of devout people in the country is increasing as well as the number of secular people. Now, the number of secular people is increasing more. Okay, so what's going on is polarization. So let me explain. And I forgot, how long am I supposed to go in this session? So in conclusion, 
No, we got a little more. We're going to take questions in the next one. Um, so, so let's put it this way, right? If you use my hand as a statistical tool, right, um, about 70 to 75% of Americans are Christians. Now, you're like, what? Let me explain. They say they are, which is really weird to people, right? It's really weird to people that there's a significant percentage of Americans who say, I'm a Christian, and we say, no, you're not. Because I was talking to her, I got an email for her, from her this morning, a reporter for the USA Today. Um, she's Jewish, uh, from Long Island. I'm from Long Island. Uh, and she speaks Yiddish, which I think is so cool. I know a few Yiddish words, but I can't use them here. Uh, and so, so I'm sitting with her. We're, we're, we're just meeting at the USA Today. And she says to me, so what's the deal with Christians right now? I say, well, we kind of feel marginalized. We kind of feel pushed out to the edge of society. And she says to me, so I forget, it was a Yiddish word. And she's like, oi vey. I don't remember what it was. She says, you feel marginalized? So here's this Jewish woman. Like, she's like, you feel marginalized? And I realized that was probably the dumb word to say to someone who's kind of walk, you know, as, as a Jewish person. But then she says something that I realized we're using words very differently. She says to me, you've had every president since the beginning of this country has been a Christian, every single one. And I realized, I don't think we're using the word the same way. Because I don't know about you, but I'm not going to say that all those brothers were walking with Jesus every step of the way. <laughs> you might have a higher perception of that. I got some concerns about the spiritual condition of, well, we'll just pause there. Um, so, what I realized is I'm using the word Christian different than she is. And she said, well, why don't you write an article on that? And I did in USA Today. You can find more of this in USA Today. And I actually said, well, you've got to look at this as a little more complex, right? So 25% of Americans say they're non-Christians, right? So that's, the, we've got these four quartiles, right? So 25% say they're non-Christians. That's people who are something else, Hindu, Muslim, Jewish, whatever. And a significant and growing percentage of people who say uh, that they're nothing. Like there's some atheists, but atheism isn't really a big deal. What's a big deal is the none of the aboves, and we call them the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And that's the fastest growing category in America today. The fastest growing category in America today is secular people who are just over religion. They don't think of themselves as connected to it. They're increasingly secular. That's what we see in and around our communities, in and around Chicagoland and its metro area. So, and also all throughout Illinois, right? All throughout Illinois. You go to southern Illinois, it's a little different because it's still, you know, southern Illinois is, is actually farther south than Richmond, Virginia. So when you see that, you see still some Bible Beltish. Oh, that's true. That's true. It's farther south than, Rich, than Richmond, Virginia. So you see some Bible Beltism there. Like I used to be in Nashville, and so it's more similar to there. But when you get to the northern part of the state, it's more secular. Now, 75% of Americans, I said, are Christians. Now, let me tell you who's in that list, right? Uh, that includes Mormons, Catholics, Mainline Protestants, Evangelicals, Historic African Americans. Now, I know some of you are like, wait a second, are you saying Mormons are Christians? No. I'm saying they call themselves Christians. Mormons are a, are a different faith that sees itself as a successor to Christianity and is not biblical Christianity or a denomination inside historic Christianity. But they call themselves Christians. So, so I write for this article, I say, using self-identification. See up there, self-descriptions. So 75% of Americans say that they're Christians, Right? And they talk about, so I say you got to divide them into categories. Some of them are cultural Christians, right? And so those are people, like a lot of my family, who sort of grew up. We, we, I grew up outside of New York City in an Irish Catholic household. But the Catholic Church was the church we didn't go to. We weren't involved. We didn't like Protestants. And there was an Irish thing with that. But we didn't like Protestants. But we didn't go to church, maybe Christmas and Easter. Well, now they don't even go then. So most of my family are culturally Christian. They say, I'm born in America, I must be a Christian because uh, I'm not Jewish or I'm not Hindu. 
About 25% of Americans are what I call congregational Christians. I say they're Christians, and we see them at Christmas and Easter, right? So that's a very loose connection to, to the church, right? We call them Christers because we see them at Christmas and Easter. They're, they're surprised to find out if they visit another time that there are more than Easter lilies and poinsettias that are available in the church. And then lastly, there's the convictional Christians. Now, again, this, this is people who call themselves Christians that sort of shape their lives around that. Right, so that's Mormons who go off to a Brigham Young and get married and do family home evening and go on mission. That's Catholics who go to Mass weekly and maybe sometimes more than that. And about half of them are evangelicals. Now, again, I'm not saying everyone in the convictional Christian category is what you and I would consider a born-again believer follower of Christ. I'm talking as a researcher here. They call themselves Christians, and about one in five Americans kind of hold that view. Now, here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. Um, in the past, the Christian team sort of stayed together, right? So, um, so if you go back, 20 years is 85%. You go back to, you go back to 90%. So in the 1930s, uh, Hollywood was creating what we call the movie ratings today, the PG-13. Hollywood was creating that. And they consulted, they asked the Catholic Church to come in and help them determine how best to set the boundaries for films. I can assure you, they are not calling the Catholic Church today for anything other to say, what would you boycott so that we can get more attention to our really bad film? So something's changed, right? But in the past, the vast majority of Americans, even though, because back over here, right, you, we, we're thinking 75%, but they didn't. So your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents in the 30s and the 40s, they didn't go to church much more than we went to church regularly, than we go to church regularly. But the culture was decidedly more religious. So if you were up here in Chicago 50, 60 years ago, it was more Catholic then, and you were running for the school board, you would put, like, I'm a member of so-and-so's Catholic church. If you put a church on a school board poster now, you'd lose the election. It would be on the news that night. So Christianity, which was, well, back to John Meacham's article in 2009, it's kind of the end of Christian America. So that shift has sort of taken place, and now what we're finding is, so the blue team used to stick together. And so this was what is important. This was kind of Christian America, and, and also Jewish people would be there too, and they'd stick with us, and it was kind of what we called the Judeo-Christian consensus, and this was mainstream culture. But what's happening now is cultural Christians now act and believe like secular people. And increasingly, congregational Christians act and believe like secular people. Now, don't miss this. There's a new consensus forming, and we're not part of it. Now, let me show you why that's important. So I have a, I have a, I have a book that comes out in 10 days, and it's called uh, Christians in the Age of Outrage. And in there, I talk a little bit about the cultural forking, right? And Christians in the Age of Outrage, how to bring our best when the world's at its worst. Got a couple of Assemblies of God examples in there, actually. Um, but so looking at the numbers again, right? So we talked about this. Here's, here's how much church attendance has changed among all Protestants. So this is everybody. This is mainline Protestants. This is evangelicals and historic African-American. There's not been a collapse of church. But what's happening is, is a lot of people, okay, are sort of nominally Christian, right? So in the past, see if I can use this. In the past, this was kind of, the, this is mainstream culture, right? This is Judeo-Christian consensus. Remember my fingers, right? This is cultural Christians, congregational Christians, convictional Christians, but this is the consensus. And there's kind of a divide between us and the non-Christians and the secular people. We didn't like them. They didn't like us. But things are shifting. This is a chart from the book, Christians in the Age of Outrage. Um, and so, but it, things are shifting now. And now, this is what the present and I think the future looks like. 
See, mainstream culture here is now a secular consensus, right? This is the cultural divide, and we're on the other side of it. I want you not to miss this, right? Your view and my view of morality, uh, marriage, the uniqueness of Christ, that he's the only way, these are not only minority views, these are offensive views now to mainstream culture. So when I go on television, right, I, I, was, I was asked to go on uh, CNN, my first time on CNN, I was scared to death. Um, and I, and, you know, so why are Christians so single-minded focused? I say, well, because we believe Jesus is the only way because that's what he said. You know, and so, so, but people, that's like, oh, how do you say that? Because what's happened is American Christianity, particularly the people in the middle, we call them the nominal Christians, right, right in here, right? They have been Oprahified, right? And the Oprahification of American religion has basically said you can believe anything you want as long as you don't tell somebody else they're wrong. So I, I actually saw this when I wrote an article for CNN, right? So I wrote this, uh, this article for CNN, and, uh, and I, a simple article, and it was, um, and they put it uh, on the, oh, I don't have the internet connection here, so sorry. Uh, but they put it on the front page of CNN, and it was, uh, why your friends keep inviting, why your Christian friends keep inviting you to church at Easter time? And uh, wow, it, a million people read it in three days, and I got I mean, they, like, called my office. They were, my staff wasn't answering the phones because they were so upset that I said, your friends keep inviting you to church because they'd like you to find the life that they have found in Christ. And it's pretty shocking. It was right there on the front page of CNN. They let me go all in and just put it on there. And, uh, and I got just inundated. We, we, we quit answering the phones, and we, you know, the email, they took my social media, they tracked me down. They were so angry that I would say that somebody should butt into someone else's life, life that they then therefore decide to butt into my life. I think they missed the irony of that moment, but that's another story for another day. So what do we do in the midst of that? This is the new cultural normal, right? So this is where we're living now. So what's happening is there's an outrage between us and the world because, and it's going to only increase. Now, I don't know for sure. You know, I'm not a prophet. I can't predict the future. I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet, and I work at a nonprofit organization. Um, <laughs> Yeah, all of you are like writing that down for your Sunday joke. I get it. I get it. Uh, but, but I do think this is going to get worse before it gets better. So let me just say a couple more things, and then we're, we're going to take, take a break, and we'll go from there. So what's the future hold, right? Well, if current trends continue, and that's what trends do, they tend to continue, we're, we're about 1% a year. Okay, back to looking at my hand for just a second. I know this looks like a weird hand gesture, but this is kind of in the middle is the nominal Christians, right? These are people who are the congregational. We see them at Christmas. These are people we try to evangelize, right? You see them at church on Christmas. You want to share the gospel with them. You're hoping your Easter sermon brings them back, right? So about 50% of the country is there culturally or congregationally. The, congreg the, the cultural people don't even come to church on Christmas and Easter. So we're trying to evangelize them and get them over here. But let me tell you what's happening. It's not working. This number is not growing, Okay? It's staying similar. It's staying the same. So it's not dying, right? People are like, church is dying. It's not dying. But I, I didn't sign up on this team so I could say, hey, we're not dying. We're holding our same percentage. Now, again, it's different people. People do go in and do out. But what's happening, this is what's significant, right? Because remember, this is the non-Christians. About half our other religions and half our, um, half our uh, secular people. 1% a year less of these people and 1% more of these people now. And PRRI, Public Religion Research uh, Institute, 
said it's 2% now. Now, that's an outlier. We'll see. So I'm going with 1% for right now. So every year, 1%, 1%. Now, it's not a direct correlation, but it's a strong correlation. 1%, 1%. So do the math, right? 50 years from now, this is all gone, and it's all up here. That's the reality where we're going. Now, Wayne Gretzky would say, he got famous with one line. He said, you know, why are you such a great hockey player? He said, I don't skate where the hockey puck is. I skate where it's going to be. Let me tell you, sisters and brothers, you're going to come to a time soon when evangelism is reaching almost all secular people. And let me say furthermore that one of the things that have, you know I'm a fan, you know you can tell I love Assemblies of God and all sorts of stuff, but one of the things the Assemblies of God has been doing for a long time, a lot of its growth has come from taking folks in non-spirit-filled traditions and walking them in. And many of you were probably something before you were Assemblies of God. Let me get, get this straight. There's a lot less people who are anything now. And so we're going to have to learn to intentionally evangelize secular people because that's who the world is going to be. The church hasn't collapsed, right? So the sky's not falling, but the ground is shifting. The, the mission field is changing, but the mission force is not so well at engaging. So we've got to move to that direction because I think in the future, we don't, other religions largely depends upon, is President Trump, I always make nervous when I say any political figure, is President Trump uh, an anomaly? Well, he's an anomaly, but is he every doctoral dissertation written 20 years from now by a politician or by a political science student will say, with the exception of 2016, every single one will say that. It's just such an outlier election. One day, George Wood will give me permission to tell you about the argument we had at a meeting about whether or not President Trump would win the election. I'll tell you about that. Yeah, we see him next time say, what did you and Stetzer argue about? And who turned out to be right? Just ask him that. Just ask him that. Uh, I'm not saying anything there, just saying, uh, but, but, you know, but anyway. So, um, so, so, but President Trump represents a ri I mean, many things, but certainly a rising sense of what we call nationalism. Um, and so, you know, less immigration. So other religions is largely driven by immigration. So we have people coming from Asia. You have people coming from, uh, you know, uh, just places where the Christian faith is less evident. You're going to end up with higher other religions. So we don't know. So that could be higher or lower, depending upon if the next president sort of has that continue. Because nationalism is on the rise all over Canada, all over Europe. So what does that look like, right? So we don't know. That's still to be seen. Uh, but I do think that notice now that the blue team, I don't want you to miss this, right? So the blue team is going to be shrunk down from 75% of current trends continue to about 30, this is my prediction, about 30% about 10% of whom are nominal, kind of on the edge. Sometimes they'll be kids trying to figure out who they are. And about 20%, so I do see decline coming, about 20% will be convictional Christians. So what does that mean for us? Well, here's the deal. Remember, too, I'm, I could be, I mean, again, this is, when I say these things, I want you to know that the prediction is not. But the data I showed you is the consensus view of of researchers, not just evangelical researchers, right? Robert Wuth now at Princeton, Christian Smith at Notre Dame, Byron Johnson at Baylor. I can go on and on. Mark Shaves at uh, University of Virginia now, I think. So this is, so what I'm saying to you is not the outlier view. Because I know you've read books and read articles of Christianity is dying. First, stop reading them. Now, I know that if I wrote a book and said Christianity was dying, more of you would have actually knew who I was because you would have bought my books. Uh, because if you say a book and say the sky's falling, people will come. They respond to fear. But I'm not going to be motivated by fear. I'm motivated by faith. I think Jesus is the Lord of the whole world, and I want to tell everybody about it. So to do that, I think we need some theological shifts, and I'm going to end with this in about one minute. First is a missionary identity. In John 20, 21, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. We need spirit filled gospel preaching assemblies of God churches that are teaching people. It's not 
come to our place, we've arrived, it's we hear the words of Jesus, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we go. So as the Father has sent me, Jesus said, so send I you. We need to help people realize they're strangers and temporary residents. This is not our home. Some people fighting like this is home territory. Listen, God only gave one people a land, and that's the people of Israel. God, can I just tell you, God doesn't love the United States. Okay? Because God doesn't love countries. God loves people. Now, some of you are going to be mad at me now, but God, God, cause God, cause God loves Brazil. And there are more Assemblies of God churches in Sao Paulo than there are in the entire United States. God loves Brazil more, it appears. <laughs> and there are two Assemblies of God denominations in Brazil. Depends upon when they started historically. So, and finally, we need a greater sense of gospel clarity. This is the gospel that's preached. We need to hear in all of our churches that Jesus died on the cross for our sin and in our place. And by grace and through faith, we receive his gift. The gospel is not you do, it is Jesus did. The gospel is not about trying harder and turning over a new leaf. It's about receiving new life and living out the realities of that new life. And our churches need to reemphasize what that is. And it ebbs and flows. It ebbs and flows. And we've got to regain the focus that ultimately is there. So I'm going to close with this. I'm going to give us a word of prayer, and then we're going to move some things around. We have a little dialogue, Q&A, and things of that sort. But, uh, but I want you to know, I, I really am so deeply thankful for your impact on my life as a young man, and for the partnership and the friendship and the relationship I've had with the Assemblies of God. We actually now, I lead a grad school, and we actually, we just, we have a partnership, for example, with Open Bible, which is a, another Pentecostal denomination. They actually are doing in groups and cohorts coming in at, uh, at Wheaton now, we're having Pentecostal-specific cohorts coming in together. So if that's ever something you guys want to do, too, we'd love to have you be training with us. We just hired Rochelle Sherman. She's an AGTS graduate, church planner with the AG in Utah. She was at Lincoln Christian. Now she's up here with us. Lots of Charismatics and Pentecostals on our faculty. Matter of fact, they've kind of taken over. So, but that's kind of what's happening in evangelicalism is, isn't it? So, so that's a good thing. But, you know, if you, if you have any interest in that, don't hesitate to see me. I've got some books in back. I'm going to sign. Actually, Lorenzo, Lorenzo's back there. Lorenzo, stand up so they can see you as well. Lorenzo actually works with me at Wheaton College. If you're interested in connecting, and we, do our, we don't do our stuff where you move to the school anymore. We do our stuff modularly. Would love to find a way to partner with the uh, Illinois district or, or individual churches to train people in modular formats. We've got some great, uh, Christine Kane's a student there now. Some of you know Christine. Matt Chandler starts in January. So it's just fun what the Lord's doing, bringing students here, and love to see what that's going on. But know of my deep love for you and really deep thankfulness for how God's at work in the AG. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for these women and men. Thank you for how you are at work in this district, this nation, and ultimately thank you, God, for the AG work around the world. Father, I pray that you'd give wisdom, direction, clarity, mission, and passion to pastors and leaders here so they might do what the writer of Hebrews says, provoke to love and good deeds their congregations so they might join Jesus on mission and show and share the love of Jesus in the midst of a broken and hurting world. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen and amen. Thanks for the opportunity. Hey, put your hands together and give it up for Dr. Ed Stetzer. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Team Illinois Podcast. We hope that this episode benefited you on your ministry journey. If you liked what you heard, give this podcast a five-star rating in your podcast app. Write a review. Let us know what you think. And we hope that you'll tune in again real soon. See you guys.